Before COVID-19, every single Sunday morning, when someone would walk up to Prodigal Church, we would hand them a paper bulletin. This is fairly common practice in most churches. Uh, it would be upcoming events, sermon notes, etc. Well, now we have our app, which is way better than a piece of paper. And so we do encourage you to download it and watch upcoming events and past sermon series, take notes, etc. But that is now our church bulletin. Um, this week, I found some misprints in church bulletins over the years, and uh, I thought they were funny, so I'd like to share a few with you. Here's one. Smile at someone who is hard to love. Say hell to someone who doesn't care much about you. Okay. The rosebud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David Allen Miles, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Julie Miles. The senior choir invites any member of the congregation who enjoys sinning to join the choir. Okay, The same holds true for our worship band. If you would like to sin, if you enjoy sinning, give Pastor Eric a call. And then uh, please join us as we show our support for Amy and Alan in preparing for the girth of their first child. And then finally, everyone's favorite Christmas hymn, Angels We Have Heard Get High. I can't wait for Christmas music to start. We've all had failures, but they probably weren't broadcasted to the entire church or to the whole world. Uh, that is not the case with the greatest king in Israel's history, and that is, of course, King David. Uh, king David uh, messed up, and we are going to explore his fall. It's fall, y'all. Let's dive into David's. Now, David is a rock star when it comes to the people of God. Um, throughout history, even today, if you look at the flag of Israel, we see a star in the middle of it, and that is called the Star of David. David. It is David that we're speaking about today. David, the slayer of giants. David, the psalmist and poet. David, God's warrior king. And so this story is about a king, and not just an ordinary king. He was chosen by God at a very young age. He had faith, the kind of faith that could slay a giant with a slingshot. The kind of faith that would trust God even when hiding in a cave and running for his life. The kind of faith that refused to take things into his own hands, but rather entrusted everything to God's timing. And God blessed this king, and God gave territories to this king. Every military adventure that this king went on, he was successful. The mighty hand of God was upon him. And God surrounded this king with mighty warriors to protect him. One of his mighty warriors killed 800 men in one battle with a spear. Another one of his warriors was in a battle and the nation of Israel retreated behind him and he stood his ground and he fought valiantly so hard that actually the sword froze to his hand and the Lord brought about a great victory for Israel that day. Come on. One time, the king was thirsty for water, and he said, just kind of on a tangent, oh, how I wish I had the water from my home village. Uh, and the warriors heard this, and they were so loyal to King David that they then went to that village, which was occupied by the enemies at that time, killed a bunch of them, 
got water from that village and brought it to David. When David saw what they had done and heard what they had done, he poured out the water as a drink offering to the Lord. This was the kind of man King David was. It is important for us to remind ourselves of how godly he was, how blessed he was, how good of a king he was. Because in the story that we are going to study today, it is easy to forget this. In 1982, ABC Evening News reported that there was an unusual modern work of art. It was a wooden chair affixed to a shotgun. The gun was loaded and set on a timer to go off at an undetermined time between now and the future. Sometime within the next hundred years, the gun was going to go off. You could only view this work of art by sitting in the wooden chair and staring down the barrel of the shotgun for 60 seconds. Of course, we'd never do it, right? So many of you are saying, can't, get, can't pay me enough to sit in that chair for 60 seconds and stare at the barrel of the shotgun. There was lines for hours for people to take their chance at sitting in the chair. They all knew that the gun could go off at any time at point blank range but they were gambling that that fatal blast would not happen during their minute in the chair. What we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is David's one minute in the chair, except with David, the gun goes off. Our story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. It says that in the time that kings go to war, David remained at home. This was the spring, right? The rains came in the winter time and it would take a while for the ground to dry out to make chariots suitable for travel for war. And so it was roughly April, May when it was the time when kings went to war. When David should have been out fighting a different battle, he was at home losing his. Oscar Wilde, the Irish playwright said, I can resist anything except temptation. Can you relate? If David would have been in the battlefield with his men, he would not have been in bed with a woman. For many of us, our greatest battles don't come when we're busy. Our greatest battles come when we're bored. The same is true for David. He saw her. He noticed her. The second word there used to describe this look was, was not just a notice. It, it, it was a gaze. He went from seeing 
to beholding. He couldn't help seeing her, but he could have helped staring at her. It, it wasn't a problem when he caught a glimpse. It was a problem when the glimpse became a gaze. Roger McGough was a poet um, in the UK during the height of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And describing the behavior and the lifestyle that so many lived and engaged in and indulged in in that season, where there was, there was no kind of ramifications and, and the whole waiting till you're married thing, that's ancient history. And so this revolution of pleasure began and in many ways we're still living um, in that. He wrote this to describe that season. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. I lost the love some time ago. Now I've only the act to grind. Brought her home from a party. Don't bother swapping names. Identities not needed when you're only playing games. High on bedroom darkness as we endure the pantomime. Ships that go bang in the night run aground on the sands of time. Saved in the nick of time. It's cornflakes and then goodbye. Another notch on the headboard. Another day wondering why. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. I lost the love some time ago. Now I've only the act to grind. God gives us some of the more harsh words in scripture when it comes to sexual temptation and sexual sin. It's often likened to uh, an ox being taken to the slaughter. And it is not because God gets particularly riled up about sexual sin. The Bible has strong words about sexual sin, not because of what it does to God, but because of what it does to us. It messes with our souls. It affects us in ways that other sins don't. Look at the verbs describing David's actions. He saw, he sent, he took, he slept, she left. David is at the pinnacle of his power. He is able to command and control everyone and everything, or so it would seem. Everyone and everyone, of course, except himself. The Bible has recorded the whole sordid affair. The narrative provides us with more than we want to know about David and far more than what we want to know about ourselves. Is it possible to lose a lifetime of faithfulness in one afternoon? This is what we find. A dark shadow is now placed over the kingly rule of King David. No matter what people said about him after this point, there was always this. The, the chronicler who, who documents the reigns of all the kings of Israel writes this in 1 Kings 15. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all of the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. It all happened so fast, and yet it was not a fall. It was a slide. He sees her. She's very beautiful. Then he inquires about her. And it can all kind of be played off as innocent, right? I just asked, like, I, I was just interested. It's not a big deal. Inquiring 
may not be a sin, but inquiring is not innocent. Have you ever noticed that almost every set of stairs and every single staircase has handrails? Why? Well, it's so that you don't fall, right? When we see stairs and our children going towards them, we yell at them, hold on to the side. So if you hold on to the side, it will prevent you from falling. But if you don't hold on to the side and you fall, the rails can stop you from tumbling all the way down the stairs and being injured significantly worse. Do you see where I'm going with this, right? God gives us handrails that we are to hold onto and they are to prevent us from falling, from stumbling. But when we do trip, which we will inevitably do, he gives us these handrails to keep us from tumbling all the way down. David inquires, who is that woman? And the messenger comes back and says, that's Uriah's wife. Close the book. That's where it should end. It's another man's wife. End of story. But David let go of the rail. That should have stopped him. Now there are more handrails as we continue the story. Look at verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, this is a euphemism, okay? He's like, go down to your house and wash your feet. We know you've been away at battle for a long time. We know you're with a bunch of dudes on the battlefield, and you're thinking about your beautiful wife. So... Go home and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah here brings up something. He brings up the ark. Okay, The ark represented God's presence. This was another handrail for David to hold on to before he tumbled all the way down. See, just a few chapters earlier, the ark returns to Jerusalem. God's presence returns to the city. And David uh, just is undignified and dances before the Lord. Uncontrollable exuberance that the presence of God has returned to Jerusalem. This powerful moment of God's presence, the ark. And Uriah here says it. He says the ark. It should have gone a, a red light right into to David's mind to say, no, no, warning, warning. Ark, remember my presence, remember me, do what I want. It should have served as a warning light for David. It does not. He lets go of the rail. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation. He ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servant. He did not go home. 
Uriah drunk was better than David sober. David didn't leave his house when it would have been smart for him to have done so. And Uriah won't go to his house when it will be legitimate for him to do so. Uriah did not provide the cover-up that David had hoped for. Hey, sleep with your wife so everyone thinks it's your baby. No. He didn't provide the cover-up. And so now David is going to make sure that Uriah is the one covered up. Covered up with the dirt of the earth, six feet in the grave. If he won't go down to his house, he will go down to his grave. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Can we pause for a moment to consider Uriah the Hittite? He was a faithful man. He was an honorable man. He was a loyal man. And he was unjustly murdered by God's anointed. In this world, good things will happen to bad people and bad things will happen to good people. That is the way it is. It's just how the world works. It doesn't mean that God is behind it all, pulling all of the puppet strings. Let's finish the story. Verse 23, the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. David says, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. That's a more literal translation. Tell Joab, don't, don't let this be evil in your eyes. It's so, he's so calloused at the loss of life. Uriah was one of his mighty men, one of his mighty soldiers that God used to protect the king and to protect the nation. Uh, he was close to David. That's why his home was within walking distance of the palace. David says, it's no big deal. And you, uh, a sword kills one, it kills many. Use this to encourage Joab. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. Throughout this whole chapter, where is God? How does God feel about this? He seems to be silent. How does God feel about his anointed king behaving in this manner? He is distant. Uh, there's no mention of him until the last verse of the chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is the divine verdict. Yes, sometimes bad things happen to good people, but that is not the will of God. This displeases the Lord. In this story, King David, the one in which is God's anointed king, 
the slayer of giants, the psalmist, the poet, the lover, the fighter. He has managed to break five of the Ten Commandments. And if we had have seen David on the streets in the weeks and months following these events, we would have thought that he got away with it. It would actually appear that his cover-up actually worked. However, if we had been able, somehow, some way, to sleep on the floor of his palace room on those nights, we would have discovered something in the night that we would have never known in the day. And that is because later on, when David is reflecting on his life, and he's reflecting on this season, he wrote another poem. And in that poem, he acknowledged what had been going on inside of him when he thought he had gotten away with it. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Have you ever experienced this? It seems that David had gotten away with it. The evil choices he made are behind him. The consequences have been avoided. Until one day, a prophet of the Lord approaches the king and he tells him this story. King David, there was two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had thousands of cattle and sheep and ewe lambs galore. The poor man had but one tiny little ewe lamb that he had once bought, and he loved that ewe lamb. It ate from his table. It slept in his bed. It grew up with his children. It was like a daughter to him. All of the family Christmas cards had a picture of the family with the little ewe lamb there. They have great Polaroids of the kids playing and wrestling with this beautiful ewe lamb. It was a part of the family. A traveler came along. And the rich man, instead of taking one of the cattle, one of the sheep that he had among thousands, he took the tiny ewe lamb from the poor man, and he slaughtered it and fed it to the traveler. And at this, King David was enraged. He says that the rich man must give four times over for what he took. He must die. And the prophet Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. Wow. Wow. You are that man. Joyce Baldwin writes, the prophet Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword. Wow. That is so true. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. No attempt to explain, no attempt to disprove or justify. Just two words in Hebrew. Just two words. I have sinned against the Lord. There are lots of two words phrases here in the Hebrew language. Here's two words in Hebrew, I'm pregnant. Here's two words in Hebrew, you're that man. Here's two words in Hebrew, 
I have sinned. I'm pregnant. You're that man. I have sinned. David failed, but he was not a failure. Failure is an event, not a person. Somebody needs to hear that today. Failure is an event, not a person. And in the aftermath of failure, we have choices. We can feel sorry for ourselves. We can stay in the dumps. We can go, well, everyone thinks this about me anyway. I might as well live into that. Or we look up and we move forward. And that is what the God of the universe called David to do. And it's what he did. It's what the God of the universe calls us to do. We will stumble. We will fall. We will not grab the handrails. We will let go of the handrails. We will go down several steps. But we will have a moment where we can look up. Where we can start heading back up the hill. And going the path that Jesus calls us on. On the Australian coat of arms is a picture of an emu and a kangaroo. Not amazingly terrifying animals to put on your flag or your coat of arms. But these animals were chosen because they share a characteristic that appealed to the Australian forefathers. See, both the emu and the kangaroo can only move forward. They cannot go backward. The emu's three-toed foot causes it to fall if it tries to go backwards, and the kangaroo is prevented from going in reverse because of its large tail. Those who truly follow Jesus become like the emu and the kangaroo in failure, moving only ever forward, never in retreat, never backward. We fell. We didn't grab the rails. We had them for a second and we let them go and we fell. But no, we don't go backwards. We rise up and we move forward. We don't stay there. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is not usable by God. Failure is an event, not a person. C.S. Lewis writes, We have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. That if we just stay on the ground long enough, if enough time passes, No, it doesn't. It doesn't cancel sin. Jesus does. Whatever you have done, whatever you have thought, whatever it is, no matter what it is, there is cancellation in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. That doesn't dispel or get rid of the earthly consequences to our own bad choices. Asked David. There were plenty of consequences that he endured because of his fall. Because he refused to hold on to the handrails. Because he had a momentary lapse in judgment. There are humongous earthly consequences. The same is true for me. The same is true for you. But in Christ, we move forward. We can't change the past but we can learn from it. We can grow from it. We can become better because of it. And so we work hard to make right the things that we've wronged and we continue to pursue Jesus to become the kind of people God has called us to be. God helps us in this. 
And God doesn't hate you for your fall. God doesn't hate you for the way you fell. God is not there punishing you because you fell. We are punished by our sins, not for our sins. Jesus is there to hold us, to look us in the eye and to say, in me, you can keep going. Let's go forward. Let's not go back. God, I just sense a heaviness in this moment that there are some who thought they were a failure. There were some who made bad choices once they already fell. And they said, well, to heck with it. And God, you are, you have your arm around them at the bottom of the stairs, holding them. The warmth of your embrace stirs something in their heart to look, to look up, to see your heart, to be filled with your heart, to go forward and not back. I pray that for these people who are listening right now in Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno, wherever you are listening from, whether it's in Columbus, Ohio, or Boytown, Virginia, or in the Philippines, or in Ireland. Um, yeah, I really thank you that you are a part of Prodigal Church. Please let us know. Uh, if you're listening online and you feel a stirring and a connection to our church, we would love to make that connection more relational. Please let us know. Next week is Thanksgiving Sunday, and it is the finale of our It's Fall Y'all Sermon Series, and we can't, can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Peace the Middle East.